You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the fields. On this episode, we are joined by Dr. Donna Yates to talk about the trafficking of archaeological materials. Before we kind of jump into the the meat and bones of the episode, Donna, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, kind of where you are, what your research interests are? Sure. Um, As you said, my name is Donna Yates. I am a lecturer at the University of Glasgow, and my title is Lecturer in Antiquities, Trafficking, and Art Crime, mostly because they let me choose my own title. Oh, nice. (laughs) So (laughs) I pick something as, as cool as possible. I I have all of my degrees are in archaeology. I have a PhD in archaeology, but for the past six years, I've been in a criminology department. So I'm at the Scottish Center for Crime and Justice Research. And the reason I'm there is because I, I try to combine archaeological style research, heritage research with methods and theories and frames of uh, 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 analysis from sociology and criminology. Um, my specialty in archaeology was Central and South American archaeology, but at this point I kind of bounce all over the place doing all sorts of things. But the main focus is this idea of the looting of the past and the commodification of the past and the trafficking of, of archaeological remains between various points. Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's fascinating. What drew you to that topic in the first place? Well, it's a, the shortest version of the story is that I thought I was just going to do regular archaeology, if there's a such thing <laughs> as that. And when I was an undergraduate, I did my field school in Belize and then rolled straight into an archaeological project in uh, rural jungle Guatemala. And um, when when I got to the sites, absolutely amazing site, a, a huge Maya site, massive temples in the jungle. It would have had some really high population. I've seen numbers like twenty five to fifty thousand people. Some people say more, uh, but every single pyramid, every single building, every single structure at the site had been basically bisected by looting. It was like Swiss oh, wow. cheese, and and anything we found there um, was was left over that the looters missed. And even while we were there, there there was some question whether we would encounter looters. And while we were excavating, some of the the local workers that I was working with told me that a particular archaeological site was being looted as we spoke, but to not really tell anybody because the the people involved had killed people in the past. All of that turned out to be absolutely true. The site that they were looting was uh, Ken Quinn. Um, Somebody had been killed. A large ball court marker had been moved to the Belize border and back again. It was originally recovered by um, secret police. All of this was going on at the same time. I was hearing whispers of it through the jungle. And by the time I got back to Boston, where I was studying at the time, I thought, well, I can't really just go on with ignoring this and kind of geared the rest of my life towards studying this and trying to prevent it. That sounds terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to throw another day in the jungle. (laughs) Wow. And kind of going from there, like, were you 
like being not only just being drawn to this topic, were there areas specifically that you found the most interesting to kind of start focusing your studies in traffic and that kind of stuff? Yeah, I was I was really quite lucky because I was studying at uh, Boston University at the time as an undergraduate, and there were a number of people there uh, who are, are really the big names in in the early and still now the 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 study of and the the prevention of the looting and tracking of antiquities. So I was studying under Clement C. Coggins, who in the late '60s wrote basically one article that changed everybody's view on the looting and trafficking of cultural objects. She inspired some of the, the early legislation that the U.S. had. Uh, Rick Aaliyah, who, who has done a significant amount of work in this area, and, and quite a few others. Uh, Lord Colin Renfrew came through my university and gave a talk. And I was also volunteering with the Archaeological Institute of America, who at the time was preparing um, uh, information for the U.S. State Department regarding uh, bilateral treaties to prevent trafficking wow. with various countries. So I had a lot of exposure to things, and I, I got very much interested in um, both a little bit about policy and how policy can affect people, but a lot about how looting and trafficking affects people on the ground. So people who live near archaeological sites, who are connected to them, um, and uh, who maybe make their income from them through things that aren't like looting, and really how this plays into uh, an idea of global inequality. So I kind of got obsessed with that idea of the, the, the rich taking advantage of the poor to have pretty things. Wow. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And I know if you've found this true in general, that it seems like it's a largely underrepresented topic of study in terms of like, you know, we hear all the big, big name or big topics in archaeology and it seems like trafficking and whatnot doesn't seem as big, like a, as much in the news as it should be. Yeah, as not much as covered. covered. Is that true for the most part? Or I'm just not reading enough. <laughs> I <laughs> know I think it's I think I think you're right. I think it's getting a bit bigger. I think that um, for a long time this has sort of been on the periphery of archaeological research in the sense that it was an issue that uh, almost all archaeologists have had to deal with it to some degree or another either directly on their own site being looted or dealing with uh, archaeological remains in in foreign collections that have no provenance and trying to square that with whatever research is being done so it's something that we've all had to deal with but as a, a form of academic inquiry on its own that's that's really been um, kind of coming to an effect in the past mm -hmm. 10, 15 years or so with very certain people. So Neil Brody at the um, Illicit Antiquities Research Center, which unfortunately no longer exists at Cambridge, and other people kind of brought this more into the mainstream of archaeological inquiry. But on the other hand, I, I'm employed by a criminology department. I'm not even in an archaeology department. So in a way, it's not like archaeology is paying my <laughs> bills or anything like that. So, <laughs> right. It's 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 it's. I think it's coming more into undergraduate educations, and I think it's it's something that uh, young archaeologists are taught about. But it isn't necessarily a research area that archaeology is investing heavily in. Yeah, although so that might be changing. There, it also seems like there's a changing public perception of archaeological looting. Um, there was that article that came out 
maybe a month ago about the the woman that they were nicknaming oh, Indiana Jones, who was like, oh like, yes, right? Like, do you do you want to just like touch yes. on that for um for a minute? I mean, obviously, like looting is bad. <laughs> Using your diplomatic uh, license to loot, yeah. <laughs> in a very nutshell, bad. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> let let me. No, let let me choose my words carefully so that I'm not sued for libel by anybody or defamation or anything. Um, but ultimately, this this is a story that's it's progressing right now because this this was in the international media just the other day, like two days ago, because um, uh, various countries have started to fuss about it as as well they should. But uh, in in an Australian paper coming out of Perth. Um, a woman in her 90s was presenting her collection of antiquities, including objects from Egypt and other parts of uh, uh, West Asia, um, saying that this was stuff that oh, she man. collected while her husband was a diplomat in the region. And um, she went into tombs and took this stuff and things were just different back then. And this was before the law went into effect. And as it turns out, that's absolutely not true. That was entirely against the law, according to absolutely everybody at the time. Um, so either she's mistaken, very much mistaken, which, uh, or she's insincere. Um, but ultimately she's 95 years old and has, unfortunately been propped up in a newspaper talking about the, these activities in a way that that sounded very mm -hmm. self-congratulatory and quite a bit horrible but uh the, the the recent newspaper accounts and i don't know anything much beyond the newspaper accounts is that complaints have been made and investigations are being done but you if, if you're bragging about using diplomatic immunity to to traffic in antiquities <laughs> you're you're probably um, asking for it. Yeah. <laughs> but oddly, that's that's an interesting thing. This this the use of diplomatic immunity to move antiquities is is not a surprise. It's something that I've encountered in a lot of major cases, and it's something that I've recorded in a number of countries of of people using power and influence in that way to to move items because diplomatic pouches aren't checked. That's fascinating. I honestly considered something like that and it seems like there are many different levels and kinds of looting and i guess for the sake yeah. of our listeners i think when we think a lot of people think looting it's just like a lone person out there with a shovel going wahaha i'm going to take this but <laughs> would you mind kind of touching on like the different kinds of looting that take place and reasons behind it maybe yeah well, I mean, there's, there's, first of all, the question is, what do you mean by looting? Yeah. But, but in a sense, there's a whole, there's a whole range of activities that we might consider to be the looting of an archaeological site. And uh, on, on one side, it can be simply doing something that we archaeologists consider to be unethical, but is still totally legal. So, for example, the excavation of Native American remains on private property within the United States, which in most cases is fully legal, but makes us feel a bit funny, mm -hmm. um, to something that is fully illegal, something that breaks um, national or local law. So in in 
for example, in Guatemala, where I, I was working before, um, all archaeological objects are property of the country. That's property of wow. the nation. So you can't loot any of them. You, even on private property, they're property of the nation. So if you've taken it out of the ground without authorization, you have broken the law. So there's there's that and everything in between. Um, some people would consider metal detectorists working in the UK or around Europe um, engaging in that particular hobby to be looters, whether they were legally doing so or legally or illegally doing so. Um, other people wouldn't. Some would consider commercial salvage firms who uh, uh, salvage ancient and slightly more modern shipwrecks mm -hmm. to be looters, whether they're legally doing it or not, and they kind of skirt the edge and sometimes do so illegally. There's quite a range of activity, but uh, ultimately, if you're looking at on-the-ground archaeological looting, you can have people, uh, you can have the single person digging something up alone as a hobby or as a, um, a, a way to make a little bit of extra money on the side of other activities, or you can have really quite organized looting gangs that hire or kind of force people into to doing really quite terrible work. Wow. So a broad range... So it ranges from hobby to full-on organized mm -hmm. crime. <laughs> and is that true for, would you say, like, the different levels for most countries? Or do you see, a, like, one type more in one area and another in a different area? I think I think there's the there's a broad range in, in most countries. This kind of uh, hobbyist-type looting, if you want to even call it looting, um, you, you tend to see that more in in the U.S. and Europe. The the people out casually with a, a, a metal detector calling it a hobby is is really quite a a Western idea of how to spend one's time for fun. This this kind of taking of archaeological objects, not really for much in the way of profit or or subsistence or anything like that. Um, you 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 see a lot of economic related looting in lower income countries. So uh, the 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 type of digging at archaeological sites that people would never do unless they if if they had better economic options, because it's. They don't make a lot of money off of it. It's hard work. It's kind of terrible work. And it's dangerous work, both from cave-ins, perhaps, but also people at that level are, are more likely to get arrested for crimes related to trafficking mm -hmm. than people higher up the trafficking chain. Mm -hmm. So so the, the most risky and the most illegal types of, of looting we tend to see in lower-income situations. Which makes sense because if you're trying to get money to put food on the table, um, yeah. the risk versus reward is there. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And so I'm sure anywhere with substantial crises occurring, whether it's Syria to just areas with extreme economic poverty, you see kind of the ebb and flow of looting for the most part in a lot of sites. Yeah. There's there's a there's a lot of research that does connect looting to um, economic decline, eco economic crash, just just kind of terrible economic situations, where you might see a base level of archaeological looting at any time in any location. Uh, the this kind of big flare up where you mm -hmm. see uh, almost a sudden gold rush, if you will. Um, often is is really tied to economic crash or or 
or conflict, hmm. but also the economic issues related to conflict. When people's livelihoods drop out, mm -hmm. well, you, you kind of, you do what you have to do. Yeah. And in a sense, that makes it very hard to address. It, it's, it's hard to say you and this, this Jean Valjean mm -hmm. stealing bread to feed your family situation shouldn't be doing this. And uh, in a way, I don't think that's the right approach to just say, don't do this, mm -hmm. arrested for, for being in this terrible situation. And I know that there was a, a recent, um, I believe it may have been Newsweek, um, but don't quote me on that. We'll definitely put the, the link in the show notes, um, <laughs> where they were talking about some individuals in ISIS-controlled territory who were forcibly recruited into finding objects, oh, helping wow. to transport objects across borders, um, you know, literally for fear of their lives, their families' lives, you know, and that, that's another <laughs> causal factor, I guess. Yeah. I, I, I can't speak much to what may or may not be going on in Syria and Iraq right now, but I can tell you uh, that uh, my research group, I should say my research group, <laughs> uh, Trafficking Culture Research Consortium. <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> oh, so some of the information that... Uh, two of my colleagues, Tess Davis and Simon McKenzie, collected in Cambodia relate to a situation like that that you described. So they, partially because Tess has spent so much time in Cambodia, she's, she's basically been working there for the past 15 years talking about the issue with people. Um, they ended up talking to a lot of people who were in situations where they were forced by the Khmer Rouge and other militants wow. to, to loot distant jungle sites, really on, on fear of death. And they, they, they had one informant that um, it's, it's just absolutely soul crushing that he was a child soldier and oh that he was a child executioner. So as a child, he actually had to execute people, but he decided to get out of that line of work and get into the much better line of work of looting archaeological sites. <laughs> so when you hear that, you go, hmm, you know, that was probably a good move if those were your two options. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but really this, the, the, the in, in that situation, they, they were able to collect a lot of evidence that supported the idea that people really were forced into doing this, that they may have gotten paid a little bit, but, but ultimately extremely terrifying and armed people were saying, well, come on village, it's hmm. time to loot this place. And they weren't about to say no, who would? Yeah. God, that is a really heartbreaking Pretty story. Depressing. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Man, I, I don't even really know where to go from there. Um, and we are really close to, to our um, break for the end of our first segment. So maybe we'll, we'll like leave it there. <laughs> to figure out our transition for when so we come back. <laughs> a painful reflective <laughs> commercial break yeah <laughs> yeah child soldiers getting out of the murdering business going into the looting business this network is supported by our listeners 
You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we have been discussing the trafficking of archaeological materials. In the last 20 minutes, we talked a bit about who was procuring um, these objects that were, were being trafficked and why. Um, in the next 20 minutes, we're going to transition a little bit into what are some of the laws around the trafficking of archaeological materials and who um, is driving the the demand for these. So I know there, there are obviously international laws, national laws, uh, state and local laws. Um, Donna, if you want to touch on a couple of the big ones, I think there was a UNESCO law. Um, yeah. So in, in a way, the, the big uh, international bit of policy that we have to work with is the 1970 UNESCO Convention on the means of uh, really long name. Basically, it's called the 1970 UNESCO Convention, and it focuses on uh, preventing archaeological objects from being looted in the first place or leaving their countries of origin in the first place and uh, affecting the return of archaeological objects. Um, when they've left their country of origin. And interestingly enough, it's not just archaeological objects. It's all sorts of cultural materials and fossils. Fossils oh. are actually named as a cultural material before archaeological objects are. Crazy stuff. I'm, I'm really obsessed with fossils trafficking right now. So this is a completely <laughs> aside. Nothing to do with I've I've I've. Uh, I've um, broken all the archaeology rules and I'm actually doing stuff with fossils these days. No. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's dinosaurs now. No. <laughs> Dark side. No, it's, partially, it's partially because in a lot of places, um, archaeological law when it comes to smuggling and protection um, is exactly the same as fossil law. It's the same law. Oh. It's on the same line of, of law. So that's that's part of it. Back to the UNESCO Convention. So, so that came out in, in, in 1970, and um, it, it's had a lot of influence um, on how, how we approach this topic internationally. And in a way, the UNESCO Convention really depends on partnerships between countries. It depends on uh, one country being able to say, this is my archaeological material, I want it back. And that, as we know, is really difficult within archaeology because ancient borders are nothing like modern borders. Um, to go back to my Guatemala example, you can't tell if a Maya object came from Guatemala or Belize. There's no way to tell. So a situation where uh, Belize needs to be able to definitively say that a looted archaeological object came from Belize to get it back um, really it's a situation that, that doesn't work. It's, it's, it's not something that, that works very well. There are a lot of positives of the UNESCO Convention, but in a way, it is a, a 1960s law that came out in 1970 that we're still applying today. I shouldn't even say it's a law. Sorry, it's a, it's a treaty, basically. 
And there, there are, again, pluses and minuses, but it, it leaves out a lot of stuff, um, including pretty much the whole trafficking phase of antiquities yeah. trafficking. It deals with the initial theft and kind of protection there. It deals with getting stuff back. It doesn't even really consider the center bit at all. So there's the UNESCO convention. There's the 1954 Hague convention, which is meant to deal with uh, antiquities in times of mm -hmm. war. It also has pluses and minuses. One of the big minuses is that it doesn't really deal with modern warfare, what war is these days, who are the combatants. Mm -hmm. um, this is from 1954. It really imagined a, a World War II situation, which we don't have anymore. And um, we have the, the UNIDWA convention. There's a lot of conventions, actually, which is meant to try to, to make uh, uh, kind of civil um, public law, uh, uh, sorry, private law unified. Um, which not very many countries assign mm -hmm. on to. And really, quite excitingly, as of uh, this spring, we have a new convention. It is the Council of Europe Convention. It's being called the Nicosia Convention. And I think nine countries have signed it, but that's a pretty good start for just a few months. And this will be the first uh, uh, international antiquities trafficking convention that actually brings any sort of criminal law and criminal sanctions into uh, an oh. international agreement. So the UNESCO convention, all these other, these other conventions actually had uh, kind of no teeth. There was, there was no criminal aspect of it. So this, this brings in all sorts of criminal charges and, and various things. And I should say the council of Europe conventions, they sound like they're just for Europe. They're actually for everybody. Anybody can sign on to a council oh. of Europe convention. So we might see some sort of international base standard for, uh, criminalization of, of crimes against cultural objects and cultural. Who would do the prosecuting for that? So if there are criminal sanctions, who would, which court would it be? That's a good question. <laughs> no, without, so for this, so what it would be uh, is uh, when a country signs on to this convention, they need to bring the provisions of the convention into their own local law. Oh, okay. So it, the, the courts would ultimately be within whatever country somebody's been stopped in or when, wherever charges are being levied. But uh, this would give a base standard and... Uh, kind of make certain things certainly illegal with certain types of penalties. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if you're dealing with kind of a cross-border case, since uh, the charges are relatively uniform under the same convention, it makes extraditions easier. It makes investigations easier. The, the, the types of evidence you collect a bit easier. At least that's, that's the thought. But again, nine countries have signed on. We're going to see where that one goes. But um, ultimately, really, when, when it comes to to, to preventing uh, the trafficking of antiquities or prosecuting people for antiquities trafficking or illegally consuming antiquities and things like that. What really matters is local law. Um, we talk a lot about these international conventions, but what really matters is what is the law in the country somebody's standing in. And that's, that's ultimately what is going to decide if anything happens to anybody at all, if they get a slap on the wrist, if they get jail time. What has been the track record? Oh, uh, bold question. <laughs> Looters often get caught and go to jail and get very severe sentences. A, a, 
a couple of countries still uh, uh, are theoretically offered the death penalty for looting. Whoa. Um, yeah, Iran. Uh, China's not supposed to anymore, but they're still convicting people of it in a weird way that I don't all know all the details of it. But China did have the death penalty for looting. Uh, a lawmaker in Egypt has argued to bring the death penalty for looting back <laughs> recently. So there's some very, very severe things on that side. When it comes to the market side, well, not very much happens to people who are illegal, consuming illegal objects, even ones who are doing so quite knowingly. So there are really quite brazen cases of, of what white-collar criminals, um, I would say, uh, engaging in the high-end smuggling of, of antiquities and not really seeing much in the way of jail time or fines or anything to convince them to stop. And there's several um, well-known high-end, um, certainly criminals, I can say that because they have convictions that get convicted and bounce right back again. They're kind of back to their, their old antics. Of just buying materials? Oh, selling it, selling it at a mm -hmm. high level. Yeah. So this is the high level type of dealer, not not kind of your low level intermediary, the the kind of person who is bringing this stuff onto the market. Actually, there's a interesting term that one of my colleagues coined, uh, Simon McKenzie coined this. He calls these people Janus figures hmm. because in a way they have two faces like the god Janus, one looking into the past, one looking into the future. So they're, they they look into the, the black market side of the antiquity smuggling chain. They absolutely know where these antiquities are coming from. They may be involved in the movement of these objects through various locations. They may have strong connections or direct connections to organized criminal groups that source these objects. Um, but on the other end, they have uh, uh, connections into the elite world, the art world. They may be selling, uh, they may be consigning objects directly to high-end auction houses. They may have, in some cases, Madison Avenue storefronts. They, um, hmm. they have two faces. They have this, this dark underworld face. They have this uh, elite face. And these Janus figures are, are really important in, in moving objects from, from the, the smuggling networks into these elite spaces, into world museums, into the hands of, of private collectors, because these kind of elite buyers are, are not going to be hanging out on the Thai-Cambodia border buying from former Khmer Rouge child <laughs> soldiers, are they? They, they? they need somebody to launder it enough to, to make, make these seem like consumable objects. So these are really, really quite important characters. And some of those, those folks um, just kind of keep bouncing back. They, the, a, a couple of them have gone down rather hard, but they keep bouncing back. Like hmm. some surprising ones that we thought were completely retired, for example, are in the news as of late being raided by Italy. And you thought, well, your jail time clearly didn't, <laughs> <laughs> didn't translate into you stopping. Um, but yeah, the, those, those are really important characters in this, I think. And identifying them, which is very difficult, is, is kind of key to breaking up smuggling networks. Hmm. But they're sort of exactly the sorts of people that aren't covered by the international conventions because they're in this transit phase. They're, they're transitioning these objects. They're, they're changing them into something acceptable by society. So what about 
the people who get caught having participated in these exchanges, not necessarily the the brokers. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Hobby Lobby. The buyers. <laughs> yes. from, a, from a couple years ago um, with, you know, they got fined um, with a number that I think a lot of Hilariously. people would think is large, but based on like the net worth of the company, maybe not. Even even more interestingly, that wasn't even a fine. So they weren't even fined. They they I, I can't remember the exact terminology, but they agreed to to fork over a certain amount of money in lieu of value of something something. So it wasn't it wasn't even a fine. So they they didn't even have that. But yeah, um, it's this this is the interesting thing about being in criminology uh, for the past six years or so, I've learned quite a lot. Um, but one thing that's really quite interesting um, coming out of criminology is that white collar actors and these people who are in elite positions, these important, powerful people um, in in all aspects of, of committing crimes are, are, are very unlikely to go down for it. They're the absolute hardest people to convict of crimes um, even when the crimes are very clear and obvious and on the books for so many reasons. Uh, they're, they're very sophisticated. They know what they're doing. They have really great lawyers because they can afford them. They are able to avoid criminal labels by, um, by just by default, by their status in society. They're able to internally and externally justify their actions in certain ways that, that people believe. Um, they're often... Um, to use a term that's applied to, to these sorts of things, they're, they're often too big to fail or too important to fail and are often too important to, to take down. Hmm. So it, it's, it's really easy to convict some, some poor person in a lower income country that's very physically looting an archaeological site. It's very difficult to, to convict a very elite person who has a lot of lawyers and a lot of money and um, the ability to uh, creatively uh, exploit loopholes and various things in the law. Um, it's, it's a very unbalanced and uneven situation. So in the case of Hobby Lobby, well, you have an extremely wealthy person who has decided exactly what he wants to do, which is to buy a, a large amount of antiquities for um, his vision of a museum and hmm. he did it. He, he chose to do it despite receiving uh, expert uh, advice from one of the top people in the field saying, no, this is entirely illegal. What are you thinking? Um, did it anyway. And the punishment was hmm. really quite light. Mm -hmm. Well, and that, that museum um, has now opened a little over a week ago. Um, Although by the time this is yeah. episode is released, it will be considerably more than than a week. Um, you know, so which so museum? There, the, this is Bible the museum, museum of the Bible. Oh, correct. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's there's a there's a lot of questions about that museum right mm -hmm. now, and we'll we'll just have to see how that one goes. I'm, but ultimately, any any museum, and I'll, I'll say this here for the record: it, it, anybody who's starting a museum now. From objects they haven't had for a hundred or two hundred years, there, there's no way that you can make a museum of, of totally legal antiquities. It's it's entirely impossible. There isn't there isn't a source for that. So if you have somebody floating in saying, "Here's my new museum," 
your only option is to have loot and fakes. <laughs> and that's the, those are the accusations that are being levied against the Museum of the Bible. And really, what, whatever the intentions are, there, there's no way to make that museum these days. It, it's just impossible. So for any museum that is trying to acquire new materials, is it completely on the onus of the curators to ensure that they're buying something that is legally being sold by like an auction house? Or does the water get a little bit muddied there when it comes to like purchasing items through a, a gallery, an auction house, etc. Well, it, in a sense, it almost, this is, this is where it comes down to local law. It, it does depend on local law. So I, I would say ethically speaking, and, and um, most museum associations agree with me, it absolutely does come down to the curators and the museums to do their due diligence. This is, this is an absolute ethical obligation for um, provenance to research to be done on anything that's being considered. And uh, especially public museums that are using public funds to, to fund this stuff should be held to really quite a high standard. The Museum of the Bible, of course, is not a public museum. Um, but, but in uh, some countries, there exists an idea of a good faith mm -hmm. buyer. So um, in, in, a, in a number of countries, if you buy something in good faith where you can show that you, you um, did an acceptable amount of due diligent research, though what is an acceptable amount, nobody knows, um, you, you won't be necessarily held um, accountable for the purchase of uh, an illicit antiquity or an huh. illicit anything. So if somebody wants it back, they may actually have to pay you for the return of it. Um, the United States doesn't have uh, a concept of a good faith buyer, I should say. So if you're in the United States, you may never be able to get good title to a looted antiquity, even if you never have to give it back. But other countries do. So this is this is where it gets a little bit murky and strange. And I think a lot of buyers, including museums, expect the dealers that they're buying from to perform a high level of due diligence. But these days, anybody who's buying an antiquity that doesn't perform um, really quite good provenance checks on what they're buying, they're, they're, they're basically mm -hmm. asking for it, I think. You can't really trust somebody who's trying to sell you something. So, <laughs> so what would you say are, are the objects... That are that are most likely to be trafficked, um, or what's the easiest oh, thing to a, not have a provenance for? Yeah. Well, that's well, that's that's actually really easy because um, it's small objects. It's really tiny things. It's coins. It's so many coins. Um, it is uh, tiny figurines. It's really it's it's metal things that you can find with a metal detector all over the place. It's uh, things that fit in your pocket. It's it's these small, uh, low-value items that you and I could go out and buy today because they cost maybe $100 or less. It's these accessible pieces. We, we make a huge deal over uh, gigantic gold pieces and really impressive, unique, one-of-a-kind finds. And those, those are the, the type of objects that we push for return for, where countries sue each other for because they're worthwhile. But... Uh, my, my colleagues and I would say that the bulk of, of looted and trafficked antiquities are these really low value items that, that come out by the cartload. And as, as archaeologists, um, as, as we all know, that 
the hole that created the, the hole that was created to to pull out this valuable gold piece is just the same as the the hole that was created to pull out this kind of crappy cylinder seal. It causes just as much archaeological destruction, perhaps even more, to to loot a few coins as it does to to loot something far more valuable. Mm-hmm. It's the same loss of context. Yet um, there's 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 a, a lot less focus on these items. Um, simply because the, the, their value is so low. When it comes to police investigations, if the items have been trafficked into another country, the, the value of these items might fall below the amount that the police mm-hmm. will investigate. That happens a lot of times. The, the, the police might say, we, we don't actually do routine investigations for anything worth less than, what, $250? A couple coins only worth 100 Cause the same archaeological destruction. It's below the investigation threshold. So really, the, t- the, the type of stuff is the kind of junky stuff that we could all buy. Hmm. Um, it's, it's a lot less exciting than, you know, massive amounts of gold floating out. But archaeologically speaking, this is where we see all these kind of lunar landscapes and, and completely gutted sites in Syria and Iraq. It's these small items that are coming out of those. Hmm. Yeah, and I know I saw there was um, estimates for what the the value of what had come out of um Syria and Iraq and some people are putting it as high as like a hundred million um in profits um worth of stuff has, has hmm. come out of there. I don't know if you feel like that's <laughs> too high <laughs> or too low. It was or... kind of a we, we we almost had like a, a during during kind of the the heart of uh the, the looting and reporting on the looting in Iraq and Syria, kind of from 2012 to, to 2014, 2015, there, there was almost like we had a running joke on how high the estimates could go. <laughs> um, I, I would, we would email back and forth very, one of us who are in academia or kind of other related groups that, that work on looting antiquities. At one point, somebody reported that it was worth six billion that isis was getting six billion and at that point you know the emails that flew around were like oh fine i'm converting at this point i'm 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 going over to the looting (laughs) side if you can get six billion dollars from looting archaeological sites then um, obviously a joke um (laughs) but 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 yeah when it when it comes to doing any sort of estimate of any illicit market i would take it with the biggest giganticest grain of salt possible because how do you how do you get that that information? How do you get that information? How do you how do you get those numbers? Uh, we can't say that for the illicit trade in drugs. We can't say that for the illicit trade in arms. We can't say that for the illicit trade in people. How can we suddenly say it for antiquities? Um, there's there's been interesting research done that um, uh, provides really kind of small scale estimates for certain classes of antiquities with a lot of caveats, but for, for the, the idea that anybody's making X amount of money off of this is, I, I think, I think misleading mm-hmm. at, at, at best. And probably at, at worst when we're up to 6 billion, absolutely crazy insane. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'll tell you, nobody's making six billion off of the international antiquities trade. Um, it's, it's just 
this the stuff isn't that high value. What we're, what we're losing is is this archaeological information. We're losing this context. We're losing our our shared culture and heritage. Um, but just because that's happening doesn't mean that there's a gigantic price tag on it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even have to be a big price tag for these people. The the, the people who are looting at the slower level. It, if if you're living on a, a dollar or two a day, adding another dollar or two in really makes a difference. Right. Back back to the the depressing looting. <laughs> side of right. I think that's that's actually a good kind of sentiment to end on, um, or to end this session this section on um, is that kind of regardless of the value of the object, the archaeological context that's lost is invaluable. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, yeah. Yep. There's there's no price tag that can be put on it, and there's no way to recover it. For sure. Um, so we will end on there, and when we come back, we will talk a little bit about reporting looted goods, um, how you can recognize them, some resources for the public to um, hopefully – help stop looting. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed. Hey, podcast listeners. Do you find yourself wondering what the latest tablet or smartphone could do for your business? Wonder what GPS to pair with your device? Just trying to figure out how to go digital in the field without breaking the bank and or making a bad investment? Or did you find a technology company to work with, but just aren't sure the questions you need to ask during the initial conversation? Well, you're not alone. There are literally thousands of tech combinations out there, and it can be really tough finding the right one for your business and your workflow. My name is Chris Webster, and I've been working in CRM since 2005, and I've been a tech enthusiast my entire life. I spend my time trying to figure out how to make archaeology more efficient, both technologically and financially. No one is going to give you a big pile of money to do whatever you want with, so you have to make the most of what you have. The right gear can mean the difference between zero margins on that next project and an employee benefits package. That's where DigTech Concierge comes in. Let us be your technology guru. Whether you have just a few questions or want us on retainer 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we're here to help. With years of experience, tens of thousands of acres of survey done completely digitally, and many, many people trained, DigTech is your tech BFF just waiting to guide you through this process now and through the inevitable changes to come. Should you hold on to those tablets or upgrade? What about the new operating system? Will it crash your apps, or can you go ahead and do it? We know the answers and can guide you to a profitable year. Go to www.digtech-llc.com slash tech-concierge to book a consultation or book us for the year. The yearly retainer includes unlimited calls and support and company training on software and gear. That's digtech-llc.com slash tech-concierge. And concierge is C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E. To get going and go digital today. Call us before you make any decisions. We've been there before. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On this episode, we have been discussing the trafficking of archaeological materials with Dr. Donna Yates from the University of Glasgow. Um, In the last two sections, we've talked about who's doing the actual looting, um, what some of the laws around trafficking of archaeological materials are, and how difficult it can be to um, apprehend the people who are purchasing um, these materials, the people who are brokering the, the transaction of these materials. Um, but moving on in this section, we're going to talk a little bit about what you can do if you su- suspect that there are um, looted materials in your vicinity, who you should talk to, um, what you can do to raise awareness 
Um, so I know and we talked about this a little bit earlier, Donna, but not on the recording. Um, one of my big questions was kind of who do you report this to if you suspect um, looting or the um, illegally obtained artifacts have, have been purchased because you have all of these conventions um, you know, so so is there a reporting body or is it just locals? Or I know you answered this for me earlier, but for our listeners. Yeah, well, um, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, pretty much the only people that you can report the, the looting of an archaeological site to or give information about possible traffic to antiquities that you've seen to is local authorities. So we're talking about uh, local police, uh, local customs, if that's the right type of people, uh, the local ministry of culture. There's not really any higher body to report anybody to. Um, there's, there's kind of an idea that maybe Interpol should do something, but in, in a, even though Interpol does have a small unit of people devoted to, to dealing with issues related to antiquities trafficking. Their role is organizational. What they do is they maintain a database and they connect different police forces to each other. They don't have any investigative powers at all. So uh, the really the, the, the only people who can investigate, the absolute only people who can investigate are your local police or local police where you think the crime was committed. So that's positive because those are people who are relatively easy to reach. Negative because it, as we're dealing with a transnational type of crime, you, you get to kind of the end of various people's jurisdictions and there's not much you can do beyond that. So positives and negatives there. But ultimately, if you think something's weird or dodgy going on, it, it's, it's time to call the local police. And so I can see how that's that'd be a great way for, you know, anybody to report something. But how do you how do you and your group, how do you guys track trafficking? Like, what's the process there? And then who do you do you guys report to the local authorities as well? See, there's a, a very interesting question. Um Actually, no. I, when it comes to anybody or any uh, antiquities trafficking that I'm researching directly, um, it has only been on very rare occasions that I've reported anyone to the authorities. Uh, the, the people that I interview, the people that I talk to are, are all covered by uh, various types of um, agreements that I have with them not to reveal their identity, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, barring a court order, I'm not going to reveal who they are. That's just good social science research there. Um, if, if we see evidence of major crimes currently taking place, we, we may tell the authorities again without really revealing sources or anything like that. But for the most part, if it's part of our actual research, like in a lot of crime research, um, as long as nobody is directly being physically harmed, we tend to see there being more value in understanding the whole process and system than taking one person down, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, uh, when it comes to tracking this and studying the, the trafficking section of antiquities trafficking, it really is a, a, a not very more complicated than going to the places where we want to do this work and kind of walking around and talking to people. Um, 
it is really quite a bit easier to talk to people who engage in low-level looting um, or have done so in the past than it is to talk to collectors and dealers and people in the market who have antiquities conventions. We, we tend to find that uh, people who have engaged in looting are often really quite open about it once they are reassured that we're, we're not turning them over to any authority for this. Um, because in a way, there's there's very little I can do to hurt them. Um, so it's it's you also have this this uh, difference in sophistication level uh, dealers and uh, uh, convicted white collar people in the market tend to not want to speak to you without their lawyer lawyer present. So um, not a lot happens. But really, uh, the the kind of research we do we do a lot of market analysis. So we look at what's on the market and do various analysis of that. But a lot of it's just really kind of qualitative. Uh, uh, almost ethnographic fieldwork in certain locations. It's it's really kind of standard anthropological type stuff or sociological oh. work. No, no, like kind of uh, <laughs> chasing criminals across borders and tackling them, uh, because uh, we're we're not really in the um, the business of in investigating individual crimes to lead to convictions. Though some of our work has has gone into stuff like that. Um, we're we're our, our goal is to understand the phenomenon and and try to affect better policy and better responses and and better ways that we can regulate this market rather than taking hmm. one or two people down. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So one um, interesting question that I've had, and there was I recently attended a, a presentation on the accessioning of items, particularly items with poor provenance. Um, whether and, and in this case they were talking about museum collections that um, some of it didn't have provenance and might never have had provenance some of it you know they have collection numbers on them and the database is who knows where that has all of the corresponding information um, and obviously archaeological material without its context is less valuable but when you're put into a situation as an institution where there are items that are offered to you, um, maybe free, maybe not, that you're not sure of the provenance of, but maybe the the people who are getting rid of them say, well, we don't have money to maintain them, and if you don't take them, we're going to kind of deaccession by neglect or, you know, our, our collections are being closed down, and if we can't get, you know, sell them or rehouse them, they're going to mm-hmm. end up in a dumpster because, unfortunately, that's something that does occasionally happen with, with museum collections. Um, but what is your take on, on kind of the ethics there? That's a rough ethical conundrum to be in. <laughs> and I, <laughs> if luckily I, I, I'm never placed in that situation. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the unofficial advice I, I tend to give to people is that, um, well, what, what's, what's wrong with returning it to its country of origin? Why does it have to stay hmm. in a foreign museum? Why does it have to deaccession to the market? Why does it have to deaccession to another foreign museum? Why, why, why aren't you just packing it up in a box and posting it to the correct embassy? And if you get to that point and everybody just goes, oh, well, because we don't want to, I kind of question people's motives. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if, if, if it's unprovenance material, but you know it likely came from Mexico or from uh, Nigeria or anywhere else, uh, 
why, why aren't you just sending it back to Nigeria? Why can't it go to a museum there? Do you think that's just like a, a I don't know, residual colonialist attitudes at play there? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> if I was to guess, yes, yes. It's, it's often not certain people's visions of what kind of museum they like their, their stuff in because they still feel like this is their stuff. It's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of um, really uh, bias in certain circles against museums in lower income countries even though some of them are absolutely spectacular museums and, and most of the professionals who work at them are true professionals. So there's, there's this kind of this thought that somehow these items hmm. aren't safe in their countries of origin. Um, mm -hmm. you, you hear a lot that, oh, they'll just get stolen again, which is really quite hilarious because the market that is creating the demand mm -hmm. is saying that it'll get stolen again for <laughs> the market. But, um, but ultimately, I think it's just this 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 downplaying of the legitimacy of of museums and cultural institutions in lower income countries, which mm -hmm. is something that we should all be certainly fighting against. If so, next time that comes up, throw that one out there. Why aren't you just giving it back to the country that that it came from and see what the response is? <laughs> yeah. Everybody kind of shifts their eyes and looks away. Then. They're, they're not really having the full conversation. If there's a reason not to give it back, like the country doesn't want it, well, in a way, if the country, if it's been offered to the country of origin, it doesn't want it, fair game. Anybody can have it at that point. But so I think <laughs> it hasn't been offered. Well, part of part of the conversation that I was part of was, you know, two collections facilities in the same city and one of them was deaccessioning and was basically like, we don't want to bother to spend the money to send this anywhere else. You're in the same city. If you want it, you can have it. I see. So it's complete hand washing. Right. Like the, the group that's deaccessioning may not, um, will not be providing funds and the group that might be taking them on, you know, museums don't have a lot of funds, um, you know, might not have the funds to pack everything up appropriately and ship it elsewhere depending on the on the volume of the collection yeah yeah and that's that that especially if you're deaccessioning to to wash your hands of paying anything else um that's that's another issue that comes up when it when uh looted cultural objects are returned who pays for the shipping when they're returned, even if they're returned by court order or because they've been seized and so on? Uh, who who pays for um, uh, maintenance and um, conservation after potentially they were they were kept in poor conditions? Often it's the the source country that's received this stuff in bad condition that that needs to pay to to clean it back up again. But hey, they got their stuff back, so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't see because it's a podcast, but I'm making a grimace right there. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we expect a lot. Um, we, we expect uh, uh, lower income countries to really shoulder a lot of the financial burden of this international problem, be it paying for returns and paying for maintenance after returns, or be it just this, this kind of initial policing and security that they're supposed to be providing at archaeological sites when really it is uh, demand that's causing the supply. It's, it's demand in countries like the US, the UK, Europe, China, places like this that have a lot of money that are, are 
convincing people to loot by the, the lucrative nature of it. If there wasn't a market for it, they wouldn't do it. <laughs> no, why would you? Who, who, it, except for archaeologists, because we're all a little bit mad, <laughs> who would be out there in the hot sun or in the freezing cold digging for archaeological stuff? There's zero percent chance, right? <laughs> I know when we're all out there digging every once in a while, we're going, why are we doing this? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so you said um, this is all something we should be uh, fighting against, that we should be fighting to not have any more trafficking and whatnot. Um just for the sake of our listeners and whatnot, why should they care? Why, well, if your listeners are archaeologists, then they absolutely should care. This is this is something that absolutely damages our livelihood. This is something that that uh, undermines our entire profession. If there are no intact archaeological sites to excavate, really, what are we doing? If uh, archaeological context has been destroyed and all we have are the, the tattered, uh, decontextualized remains of what was once an intact site, we're not really doing much in the way of archaeology anymore, any, are we? We're, we're kind of piecing together fragments that, by rights, probably can't be pieced together. So absolutely all archaeologists should care about this. Um, it is at a, a wider societal level, this is our shared and collected past. This is this is something that um, really, in a profound way, isn't owned by any one person. And the idea that a, a very small group of people get to own, control, and make all decisions about the the, the remains of our shared heritage, I think for me personally is is really quite disturbing it's quite scary that 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 somebody is able to take that away from us um and uh, at a, a another a, a different level um we're we're dealing with like i said we're dealing with a a, a major issue of global inequality we have uh uh uh, white Western, or these days, really quite wealthy Eastern um, individuals who are are essentially taking culture away from people with a significantly less power, and uh, that has effects of eroding society. Um, uh, it's it destroys traditional ways of life, alternative ways of of being and seeing the world, and that just absolutely mm -hmm. isn't fair. Um, this, this, this level of power imbalance, it doesn't make anybody safe or secure. So it, it is a major issue. We, we all know that heritage is a large part of uh, group and individual identity. And the loss of that heritage is a loss of major identity. And uh, really, we can't stand for it. But the easiest side of it is to say <laughs> we're archaeologists and that's our life. So <laughs> watching people tear it apart, we really can't do We can't just kind of sit oh, idly no. by, I don't think. Definitely not. This does bring us um, pretty close to the end of our one hour show. So um, Donna or Emily, if you have any final thoughts, um, now would be the time to air them. <laughs> Yeah. Well, one, one thing I'd like to say is that um, uh, in our research, we have seen, we see a lot of promise in ideas of soft regulation, of changing hearts and minds, of not really focusing on 
big fines or or convictions or jail time for people because it's likely that's not going to happen anyway. And there's a lot of evidence that for certain types of people that doesn't the, the threat of jail time doesn't even change their behavior. But when we're dealing with the collecting of illicit antiquities, the consumption side of the market, um, you, you really can get a lot of traction in trying to influence people's behavior, uh, to, to change hearts and minds, to, to kind of add a more social stigma to the consumption of these mm. uh, antiquities, because these are people who are often elite. They don't consider themselves to be criminals. They consider themselves to be upstanding. Um, and what what we need to do is, is move to a situation where it just becomes absolutely not acceptable to have a looted mm-hmm. antiquity on your mantelpiece. So in a way, I, I tend to think of it like like uh, fur. Um, it used to be that um, it was considered the most elite thing in the world to step out on, you know, in the middle of Madison Avenue in a gigantic fur coat. These days, people still kind of do it, but you're, there's a, what, a 50% <laughs> chance somebody's going to throw red paint on you if you do it. And, and when you see somebody in a full fur coat, I don't know about you, I go, ooh, yeah. that's, that's a bit strange. Don't really see that every day anymore. It's, it, it's, it's moving to a situation where in a lot of circles, just doing that just be, be, has become ethically dubious. The, your, your, your wealthy mm-hmm. and moneyed friends judge you for it. So what I want to do is I want to create a situation where when there's a some some wealthy person's dinner party and they have all of their Iraqi antiquities uh, displayed for all of their <laughs> friends to see their friends go, oh, my gosh, what are you doing? And are absolutely ashamed to see them. Mm-hmm. So I, I want that social pressure to be there. And I think that's where we have a lot of hope. And that's where I think anybody listening can have a lot of hope hope this is this is where we we absolutely just change the narrative we talk about this issue to each other to our friends when we go to museums we tell other people um that this is an unprovenance antiquity it was totally stolen we Sorry. go on podcasts and talk about it if if we're teaching we make sure our students all of our students have heard of this issue we we just bring it up we, we don't hide it within um, we don't hide it behind mm-hmm. our archaeology. We bring this to the forefront of archaeology. We, we don't hide it in museum displays. We bring it to the forefront. And uh, we, we keep it as a constant oh, source yeah. of discussion. We talk to kids about it. Um, and and, and that's, that's how I think that we can change the tone. And I think that in, uh, I've, I've seen a, a shift in the tone in, in even the past decade uh, since I've been studying this issue. I think that more and more people are, are seeing the the collecting of antiquities that have no history, that have come out of the ground illegally and been trafficked as, as just not really an acceptable thing to do anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of power and shame is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, think there's, I think there's more power in social shame than in increased criminal penalties. And I think that's where we, we all can do all sorts of things to contribute to to well said not necessarily naming but definitely shame. seriously well yeah, said definitely <laughs> very well said <laughs> well there we go that's that's, that's what we're doing we're, we're all shaming but not naming <laughs> exactly the other side of course is to think of ways to to bring the public into archaeological spaces in a positive way to to think of of ways for 
maybe the interested and wealthy moneyed elite to channel their money towards proper archaeology things, um, but also to just give people a way, uh, many ways to engage with the past that uh, doesn't really involve consuming it. To take the the little kid who wants to buy coins and arrowheads and find something that they can do that isn't mm-hmm. necessarily consuming looted and illicit material. And that's that's just that's that's community archaeology, that's positive public outreach, and that's kind of brainstorming on everybody's part, I think. Yeah, I think those are um, excellent points to end on. We are also out of time. Um, so Donna, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really lovely having you on to, to discuss this. And we hope you come again. Yes, please do. Yeah. Thank um, you so much for having as me. As always, we <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have to think of something positive to talk about next time. Cause I think this, 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 it's a depressing job. It is, but we, we tend to be at least slightly bright yes. and sunny sometimes. <laughs> we try. Um, for all of our listeners, if you have any further questions, um, you can always reach us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. Um, and until next time, bye, ladies. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Women in Archaeology podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Please like, share, rate, and subscribe to the show wherever you found it. If you have questions, leave them in the show notes page at www.archpodnet.com slash WIA or email them to womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. The music is Retro Future by Kevin McLeod and is royalty-free music. To support the network and become a member, go to www.archpodnet.com slash members. This show is produced at the Reno Collective in Reno, Nevada. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.